All right, and so we are picking up our sermon. We have had a week off. Uh, last week we had Pastor Tyler here. We did a great job. We were really thankful to have him. Uh, and then we did. We had one sermon there, and then before that we had somebody else speak. So we've been a little spotty the last couple weeks. So let me get bring you up to speed on where we're at. We're in a series where we're looking at the life of Jacob, and we're kind of following the story along. And where we last left off, right, in previous episodes, we have Jacob running away from his family after he had tricked his his father into giving him the birthright and the blessing that belonged to his older brother, and he's running away for his life, and he's isolated on the side of the road. Remember we talked about he kind of was on like a rest stop in Iowa, right? A nowhere place that nobody wants to be, right? And he, he meets God. God gives him this incredible vision, and he sees this staircase where angels are ascending and descending, and he wakes up in the morning after sleeping on a rock, and realizes that God is in every place, that there's nowhere that he can go where he's away from God's presence. He builds an altar, and he says, this surely is a place where God was. And I had no idea he was even, even here, right? And we, we talked about the fact that that staircase, Jesus later on talked about that dream and said there's a, there's a person who connects heaven and earth, who allows people to ascend into heaven, who descends himself to come and be with us, and that person is Jesus. He is the staircase from the dream that Jacob had on the side of the road at a rest stop in Iowa. Um, and so today we're picking up the story where he's been making his way over to his uncle's uh, area where he lives because he's run away from his family to get away from his brother, and he's looking for a wife with his uncle's family. So there's that. Okay. Uh, uh, and so he's awkwardly kind of coming into town, and he has an agenda to find a wife that is not one of the women where he, his family has lived, but it's from his mother's side of the family. And this is essentially this, this whole story kind of harkens back to when uh, they went to find a, a wife for Isaac. Abraham sent his servant to this very same place, and, and, uh, and they looked for God to show them who it was, and, and they found a wife for Isaac at this very same well. And they had this conversation, and the families kind of came together. And so now Jacob is trying to go and kind of repeat that process that happened for his father. And so that's kind of where we're picking it up. And you're going to see here in a second that Jacob is a little awkward. Remember, the two differences between the brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau is a man of the hunt. You know, he's out there slaying beasts and eating raw meat on the fields of, I don't know, whatever. That's what I think happens with super manly men. I'm not a super manly man myself. Like, I feel like sometimes when I walk into, like, a hardware store or an auto parts store that they just, like, I feel like when I walk in there, they go, what's wrong with your car? And, and I start to explain it to them. And they go, what noise does it make? And they go, hey, yo, John, come on over here. And they're like, hey, hey, come on over. Tell us what noise it makes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's sort of like a rattling. And uh, it's like a, Ugh! and they're like, oh, yeah, tell us that again. What noise does it make, right? <laughs> like, they're having fun with me. I'm not the manly man. I'm not the Esau of the group, right? Uh, Jacob, who's kind of hung more in the tents and, and we have this idea that he was feminine. It's not necessarily that he was feminine, but he probably took care of the herds. He probably uh, was in charge of um, sort of overseeing all the servants and all the people that were working in the camps. Like, and he was close to his mom. And we know he was a great cook. That's great. You, we have, you know, man, man, manly chefs all over the place, man. You can go and find a manly chef just about anywhere. So there wasn't, he wasn't a, a sort of a girly dude, but he was just somebody who wasn't as uh, outdoorsy and, and sort of hunt-driven <laughs> the way Esau was. And so as he's coming into town, you're going to see he's a little bit awkward. Uh, he's not necessarily sure where he fits, and he's trying to find a wife. He has an agenda for what he's doing, okay? And so we're picking up the story in Genesis chapter 29. 
uh, starting with verse 14. After Jacob, no, that's not right, J-K, L-O-L, starting with verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey. So he gets up in the morning off of his rock, right? Uh, he creates a, 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 an, an altar to the Lord. He pours the only possession he has is oil on top of it, right? And then verse 1, he continued on his journey. He came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country. And my guess is Isaac told him, go look for the well, right? That's where we found your mom. That's where we found her. She was at that well. There's families that go to that well every single day. This is the place that waters all their flocks, that you know, helps them stay alive. Go to that place. That's sort of like the city center. Okay? There wasn't a real um, you know, built-up area. It was kind of like this nomadic area. And so this well was a place where everybody went at least once a day, right? So it says, there he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from the well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the, mouths, from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. And so when he shows up, kind of in the middle of the day there, the, the rock that's covering the well has been put back, and apparently it's big, and apparently it takes a couple people to go ahead and, and move it. And so he's just kind of, okay, I found this place, and now I've got to figure out where my family is. Where is the people that my mom has come from? Where is her brother, and where is their family? It says, Jacob asked the shepherds. Now, you have to think about for a second shepherds, right? These are, these are Esau-like people, okay? These are guys who are out with their sheep, you know, out living on the land all the time. They got real calluses. These are people that work hard. They know exactly what it means to be out for weeks and months at a time, moving their sheep around and being with them. They don't go home. They camp where they're at. They probably smell the part, look the part. They probably are these sort of gruff, I mean, they're probably not very socialized, let's be honest with ourselves. Like, they're not out there with a whole bunch of people. They're out there by themselves. I mean, my guess is they're a little mumbly. They're not really sure how to talk to people. Uh, Jacob's a man of the tents. He knows how to talk to people, right? So he says, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. Now, their responses here, when you study them in the original language, there's almost nothing to be found there because they're so short. Essentially, you're getting terse, short uh, responses from people who live uh, out in the wilderness, okay? So that's kind of the situation. He's like, okay, all right, you're from Haran. I can see that. We're standing in Haran. This is great. Um, he said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yeah, we know. <laughs> hey, thanks for the great answer. Uh, could you maybe, you're such a great conversationalist. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. Then Jacob asked him, is he well? You know, and in my, in my mind, this is like a, a rom, starting, it's going to turn into a rom-com in a minute, right? So this is Jacob leaning against the well. He's like, is he, is he well? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, no, that's not happening. We're not laughing at you, little uh, tense boy. Um, and he says, yeah, he's well. And guess what? Here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Now, that's an interesting concept, right? Rachel is out with their sheep. It tells you something about what's going on in Laban's family. Now, Laban has two daughters. Right? He doesn't have uh, sons to be, to be out shepherding their flocks. And so Rachel is the one who's out shepherding their flocks. You can see that there's a need for, in their culture, there's a need in their family for a male presence to be out there with these sheep. Rachel would definitely not want to be doing this unless she was, had to do it for the family. This is not something that you would choose if you were a woman. You would rather be you know, in, the, in the tents, basically. And so she comes walking up with these sheep, and it's kind of an opportunity for him. He kind of says, 
all right, looks like there's a lane for me here in this family. They actually need another man. Laban's doing all the work, and his daughters are picking up the slack, and there's no other men in this family to help uh, carry the load, right? And back then, that would have been a huge deal. So it says, he says, look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep, take them back to pasture. They say, we can't until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well, and then we will water the sheep. So he says, hey, let's take Laban's sheep, let's go ahead and water them now, and let's get them out of the way so later on when the other flocks come in, then they can have, and they basically are um, in some kind of union or government job, and they're like, nope, it's not time to open the mouth of the well. We're not getting up, and we're not moving the rock, and we're not doing extra work, and we're going to get paid the same amount. In fact, we're going to get overtime later when we move this thing. And so, good luck with it, <laughs> right? And, uh, and Jacob is trying to figure out, okay, he sees the flock coming, and he sees Rachel coming, and he's like, how do I impress Rachel, right? This is what he's going through. He's like, how do I make an impression uh, in the eyes of Rachel? And what's funny is that, guys, I can speak for us, um, sometimes, you know, when we uh, become adults, but we yet haven't met uh, someone who has motivated us to actually grow up and become men yet, uh, we find ourselves playing video games and eating Cheetos, and we have no savings account, and we have a car that's basically like just falling apart, and, you know, and we're just kind of bootstrapping it together, and we're living, and we'd be just fine coming home from work and sitting in an easy chair with no other furniture in the room and playing video games for three or four hours. Am I describing anyone's life before they met their future spouse, right? Okay, yeah. Uh, and when you meet the right girl, something happens. Something happens where you start to all of a sudden get a savings account and take a shower and <laughs> turn off the video games. You start to work to gain the attention of this uh, lady that you love. And I, I think it can go the other way. I just know that the male experience, I've worked with plenty of 25-year-old, 13-year-olds who haven't yet <laughs> figured out how to become a man. And Jacob's going for it. He's like, okay, so I'm going to try and impress Rachel. And there's, there's a couple things you do when you're trying to impress somebody. Right, press a girl, like, one is you say something funny, I think we've established that's not going to happen with him. Uh, he made the well joke, and it went over like a uh, lead balloon. And then, second, do something strong, okay? So, I don't know, look, look strong. Do, he's probably thinking, what would Esau do right now, right? That's probably what's going through his head. And, and so, he says, uh, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep. Father's sheep. Apparently, that's not plural. Sheep is not the right word. For she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over, and look what he did. Feet of strength. Rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered it. So he walked over, and he picked up the whole stone. He's like, he's like hey, what's up, Rachel? <laughs> right? Like, I got this. <laughs> right? Dad told me that there's some fine ladies that come to this well, and I'm going to show them who I am, and this is going down right now. Right? And he moves the whole thing, and then he works, right? We don't know what his work ethic was before this, but he wants to show Rachel who he is, and he wants to make an impression on her, and he wants to let his uncle know that he's here. And so he waters her sheep, rolls away the stone to the mouth of the well, and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Ra That's super forward. He just went ahead and went. No, this is a greeting, not, not, not that kind of kiss. These are good Jewish uh, law-abiding uh, people here. So he greeted Rachel and began to weep aloud. Okay, not what I would have led with. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, 
He had told Rachel that he, he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebecca, and so he ran, so she ran to tell and told her father. Okay, so he kind of makes his presence known. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. By the way, look at this language, right? This language is reminiscent of the greeting that the prodigal son receives when the father goes out to meet the prodigal son, that he runs to him, that he greets him with a kiss. In, in the prodigal son story, he puts the, the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet and the robe on him, and he kind of restores him to the family. But there's a sense that there's a prodigal son here coming back to his family in this moment. And Laban greets him in this way, embraces him, uh, kisses him, brought him to his home, and then Jacob told him all these things. So Jacob spills his guts, and he says, hey, I, I've really ruined everything in my life. I've, I've uh, you know, tricked my dad and stolen from my brother and created a mess and ruined all the relationships, and I found myself sleeping on a rock last night in a place I didn't want to be, and here I am alone, and I've run away, and I don't know what's going on, but I just need somebody to love me. Somebody to bless me and somebody to take me in. Right? He's, he's a lost puppy looking for a home. And Laban, we're going to see in a minute, sees a sucker. Right? Laban, you have to think about the fact that Laban and Rebekah are brother and sister. And she was the one that was creating all of this chaos with Jacob and leading him along. And so you think like, like brother, like sister. They're both chaotic people who are going to manipulate and who are going to use people and Laban, we find out, just sees a sucker. And he says, then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood, right? And he uses um, Genesis, early Genesis language, marriage language, right? You're part of my, my family. You can become, you can now come here. I know you're isolated and you're, you're, distra- uh, you're separated from your family, but you have a home, a home with us. And he's like, this is great. Now the sucker's li- moving into my family and we'll see what happens here. And so it says, After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. And so now this is deceiver against deceiver here in a moment of uh, testing each other out. And so Laban basically says, hey, I don't want you to live here for free, and I don't want you to do everything for free. I would love to pay you for what you're doing. Now, why don't you tell me what you think you're worth? And that's a super loaded question because, like, how do you answer that? Like, if you answer how you really think you, what you're worth, he's not going to give you that. He's going to work the system. If you answer low because you're so grateful that he took you in, then you're basically allowing him to take advantage of you. And so he's playing this game with Jacob uh, to basically put him in a very difficult situation. This is like if you watch, um, like, Pawn Stars or you watch, like, uh, shows where they're going to, like, trade stuff. You, one of the rules of trading with somebody or uh, buying something from somebody is that you never establish the price. You always make them tell you what they want to give you for it or what they want to pay for it. And then you work them down from that number and you never ever establish the price. You never say a price first. You always say a price second. So he is putting all the weight onto Jacob and saying, hey, why don't you tell me what you're worth? It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And I, and I, I went to study this this week. I was like, okay, what does this mean? Le- Leah had weak eyes. Like, what is that, what is, what's the story here? And it, 
it, it translates exactly the way that you would think it would. It literally means Leah was not so pretty, essentially, if I was going to say it in a PC way, that she was not someone who caught his eye, that she was not necessarily somebody. But Rachel was ravishing, was gorgeous, okay, both in figure and appearance, both in facial and body, right? So it, it's, a, it's a really clear, um, you know, comparison between these two sisters. And let's just be honest, the way that this is written and the way that this comes out, this is not the first time. They've lived with this comparison for their whole lives. These two sisters have always taken on the identity of, I'm the weak-eyed one, and I'm the beautiful one. Right? I think some of us have been in relationships and families where that's the case, where we feel like we are inferior or superior to our other family members, or they have an issue with that, and they feel that way, and there's conflict between us, but the the situation between these two sisters was probably a tough one because uh, Leah, the older one, who's supposed to you know, be the one who gets married first, and Rachel, the younger one, everybody's interested in Rachel. Everybody's coming by to talk about Rachel, and they're probably fending off the suitors for Rachel while Leah is just sitting there thinking, like, will anyone ever come here and ask about me? Will anyone ever come here and inquire about me? Will I ever find somebody who will love me? Okay, And it's the, the comparison here that we first see is really strong and intense. And it basically says Leah was not the beautiful one, and Rachel had all of the beauty. And of course, Jacob was in love with Rachel. He said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And this, this fool establishes the price for his labor. And in that day, if you were going to marry somebody, an appropriate dowry, or whatever appropriate amount that you would give the family, right, to receive a, a wife from the family would be a, like a, a three-month or six-month uh, amount of money or amount of labor or amount of whatever that you could trade or give, right? So if you were in livestock, it'd be three or six months. Of cow, I don't know, cow, I'm not sure. Uh, or if you were like a farmer, it'd be three to six months of your, your crops or whatever. And in this case, he offers seven years, And Laban is like, this guy is a fool. This is going to be great. Yeah, you can work for me for free for seven years. And in Laban's mind, probably now I have seven years to figure out how I can marry off Leah in the meantime. And while you work for seven years, I get six years of free work and labor from you in this this, uh, arrangement we have. So he says, I'll work for you for seven years in return from your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. That's that makes you feel great about yourself. Ah, uh, I guess maybe better to you than someone else. I mean, cool. So he says, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. And this is like one of those most romantic things in all of scripture, right? But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. <laughs> Ladies, find yourself a guy like that. Find yourself somebody who loves you like that. It says he worked for seven years ready to receive his bride. And this is where this beautiful rom-com montage would have been, right, where they're just like flirting with each other in the fields. And, she, you know, he comes in for dinner and kind of slides into the table. And he just kind of looks at her and they make eye contact. And later on they're, you know, drawing water from the well and they get into like a little splashy fight like, this is where the rom-com, this is where the love is starting to grow, right? Seven years to create this relationship and to grow in their love for one another. It's incredibly romantic. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. You can see their love growing. They're both very pure, 
Jewish uh, people, so there's no consummation of this relationship. It's, it is a pure uh, time for them to grow in their love for one another. Okay, So for seven years, he waits and he works, and for him it feels like just a very short amount of time. Again, when you find the right lady, men, right, you'll start to work. You'll start to do what's necessary. You'll start to take the steps you have to. You'll put the effort in because it's worth it to you, and it won't feel like a burden. It will feel like a joy when you get to do that. So it says, then Jacob said to Laban, after the uh, seven years was up, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. I do not recommend that you say this to your father-in-law <laughs> at any point. And in fact, the ESV version is spectacularly awkward, okay? If anybody wants to go read it, uh, it says, uh, give me my wife, my time is complete, and I want to go inside of her, said to the father. That's how raw this statement comes out and is super awkward. Good job, Jacob. You are awesome with words. So it says, so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast, right? So Laban starts the celebration, brings everyone together, and they start the wedding feast, and it says, but when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. And when morning came, there was Leah. That's like a major bummer for Leah. That statement is just brutal. When morning came and he woke up and he rolled over in bed and he looked at his new bride it was utter disappointment in his eyes. So you've been the daughter who's been the ugly one your whole life. You get thrust upon an unwilling husband. You go through with that, and then the next morning when you make eye contact with your new husband, it's just utter disappointment in his eyes. I mean, Leah is an incredible person. We'll see later on that she's... Uh, probably better than the rest of them, to be honest with you. And she is in a tough, tough spot. And what you have here is a deceiver deceiving the deceiver, right? So you've got uh, essentially uh, someone who deceived his whole family now being deceived by his father-in-law. And this is, this is where, where essentially you would, uh, if, if it was, uh, you know, M. Night Shyamalan or uh, I'm trying to, trying to think of who else, like, pulls the curtain away at the last second, right? There would be this connection between these two events. You'd see Jacob in the tents putting on the fur and getting ready to, to uh, fool his husband. And you'd see them liquoring up Jacob at the wedding. And then you'd see him kind of uh, sliding in with the stew and, and faking it with his father. And then it cut over and you'd see uh, you know, them kind of sending Leah into the tent to go ahead and consummate the marriage. And then you'd see kind of the, the, what was going on there where the father gives away the thing and gets tricked. And you know, you'd see them the next morning as he wakes up. It would be like this this montage going back and forth between these two events because they are so, so related. They are essentially, uh, you got Jacob forcing God's will in one section, taking on himself to go ahead and cheat his way and deceive his way, and then you've got Laban going ahead and cheating and deceiving his way in this way. And so the deceiver has now been deceived. The one who was in love for seven years and has built this relationship now is so disappointed. And I want you to know, and when you're married, you won't wake up next to Rachel every single day. Even when you get married, that Rachel's at the altar, and Rachel the next morning, and you're on the honeymoon, it's Rachel. In the first year, it's, it's all Rachel through the honeymoon period. There'll be a moment where 
you'll have to really be married. And you'll look over and see Leah, not Rachel. Right? There'll be a moment where you are disappointed in what's going on in your marriage, or you're disappointed in the other person that you're married to, and you'll have to remind yourself right, that this person is the one who I love and the one who I've chosen. And marriage often is a daily decision. It's not a, uh, a feeling that you get. It's something that you put effort into and work at, and you continue to create in each other the Rachel that you want and not to see the Leah in them. I'm getting off on a tangent. Okay. So it says, so Jacob said to Laban, what, what is this that you've done to me? Like, I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Like, uh, why have you deceived me? And Esau, if he could have seen this conversation, would have loved this. Laban replies, it's not our, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter a marriage before the older one. And he's also really digging him here and saying, look, I wouldn't be giving the blessing to my younger son. I wouldn't be doing what your family did. I, I, we don't send our younger daughter out before we send our, our older one out, right? Like, he's, we have an order to things, and we don't operate like the family you came from. So he says, finish this daughter's bridal week, and we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so, and he finished the week with, with Leah, and Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his servant, uh, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. And we see another situation in this family that's so jacked up where essentially you are preferring one to the other. And in this case, like, and again, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the Bible never uh, argues for polygamy. And anytime we see polygamy, it is an absolute catastrophe. It is a train wreck of epic proportions. You have a husband who loves one spouse and not the other because you weren't designed to have two spouses. You were designed to have one. It's in the very beginning of Genesis where it talks about one man and one woman will come together and that will be the union that stands in that relationship. And this is so backwards and wrong and messed up that now we basically have this triangle of stuff that's going to happen. And we're going to see the chaos that it brings next week when we get more into the, the, the conversation about them having kids and having this kind of like competitive nature between them. And Leah is just kind of left there, isolated, alone, cut off, and Rachel and Jacob are loving each other and doesn't say anything about how fast or slow that next seven years went. Well, I guess it went real slow. Having two wives and having one that you love and one that you don't and living in that tension definitely wasn't going fast. And so he said his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah and he worked for Laban another seven years. And so Jacob said to Laban, um, nope, JK, LOL. Here we go. Uh, nope. All right. I guess that's the end of where we were. So a couple things to take out of this, this story. Uh, it's, it ends with a thud, with a, de a depressive state for these, for these uh, characters. For Leah, she's in a place where she's now again in that place that she's grown up in where she's the forgotten about daughter or in this case the forgotten about wife or sister. You've got Rachel who's you know in the place that she wants to be but now she's sharing it with somebody she doesn't want to share it with. And you've got Jacob who's now trying to make a way, trying to find a way, trying to find his place in the world and now he's had both of these women sort of thrust upon him when he only wanted to be with Rachel. And sometimes we deal with disappointment and sometimes things don't work the way that we want them to. And sometimes our expectations are one thing 
and then another thing happens. What's amazing about these stories is that these aren't um, made in a way that they're uh, like a fairy tale. They're real. They're telling you what really goes on here. And when we look at this, we would say, well, is the Bible telling us that we should deceive one another? Is it telling us that we should be polygamous? Is it telling us that this is the way families should run? No. It's explaining to you what's going on in a real family at a real time. And it's explaining to you that God, no matter what mistakes we make and no matter how we mess things up, he continues to be faithful to his promises to us, even when we're deceiving each other and even when we're in messed up situations, and even when we're struggling with the sin and things that are in our lives, that God continues to be faithful. There aren't great people. There's not a perfect person in this story where we go, there's the hero. They're all messed up, every one of them. Laban's messed up. <laughs> Leah's in a tough spot. Rachel's in a tough spot. Jacob's not a good person. Uh, Jacob's parents aren't great people. His brother's not a good person. Like, this whole story is screwed up. And the, the, the thing that is the byline through all of Genesis is that God is faithful even when we are messed up. Now, on the one hand, it tells us that we can come with the stuff we have and that God can still be active in our lives and still be blessing us and still be walking alongside of us and still be true to what he says he's going to do. Um, and it causes us to not have to live in a place of perfection. But Jesus comes and he calls us to continue to grow in who we are. I've been doing some premarital counseling with a, with a couple, and, you know, I think anytime I get together and sit down with them when they're starting to work on their marriage, it's like, I'm bringing in all this stuff, and I'm bringing in all this stuff, and we're going to try to find a way forward and figure out how this all works. And in any marriage, in any relationship, working on yourself, making sure that you're the kind of person that honors God and does what God wants and continues to grow and be healthy and live in community and be serving in the way that you're supposed to be serving creates a marriage that's strong and lasts for a long time. In this case, there's a lot of work that these people need to be doing. We're not actually going to see a full, uh, we're not going to see all of these issues worked out for another whole generation. And it's going to take a selfless act all the way at the end of the story of their children to kind of undo some of the damage that's been done in their families. And yet through the entire thing, God is incredibly faithful. And whatever you bring in, God is incredibly faithful. Whatever you're dealing with, God is incredibly faithful. You don't have to be perfect. You just need to be in relationship with Jesus. Let me uh, pray and close our time here. God, thank you for the fact that you are faithful even when we are messed up, even when we carry in baggage, even when we're struggling with stuff, God, that you are faithful to the things that you say that you will do. I pray, God, that you would show us what it looks like for us to continue to be even more obedient, to continue to grow in our faith with you, to continue to become the people that you've called us to be, not to settle for... Uh, all the deception, all the sin, all the things that try to drag us down, God, but that we would become people who listen, who respond, who are faithful to you as you are faithful to us. Thank you, God, for going first. Thank you, God, for doing it for us even when we don't deserve it. Um, would you just show us how you see us, how you love us, and your faithfulness even in spite of ourselves sometimes. Thank you for being a God who is intimately involved in our lives and who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.